sitting, but maybe just as where you are, just turn around and give a friendly hello to people around you. Just say good day, connect. It is, it is good to be here, it's good to gather, and those of you who are joining us online, it, it's good to connect with you in this way uh, as well. Um, Maren says that of the last five weeks, our family has spent four of them in, in quarantine. I haven't quite kept track of that. It's one of the joys of having a large family. There's lots of people to get COVID at different times. So uh, that's been our experience over the last few weeks. So, but it's really good then to be kind of free of all that again and, and back with you face to face. Uh, in the meanwhile, like in, over the past few weeks, David has then borne the, the load of uh, leading our services and preaching it and all of that. Uh, and so he's not here today. He's figured he'd, he'd take the week off. Um, no, no, he's, he's actually down at Epsom Community, um, down near Bendigo, and he's there uh, leading the induction of the new pastor there. A uh, couple of things just to, to let you know about. Um, one is for uh, our young people, youth starts up again this Friday night. It's looking different to um, how it has previously as, as the team seek to navigate the restrictions and what we can and can't do. Um, but youth is starting and they will gather uh, with families and, and, uh, and such down at the park um, this week and details will come. So look out for that if you are a young person or parents of them. The other thing to let you know about is that in two weeks' time, on the 27th, um, after the morning service, we're, we're going to have, have an open uh, meeting. It's, it's a church meeting that's not a church meeting, if you like, so it's not, it's not an official businessy one, but it's, a, it's an open you know, kind of family chat, if you like, um, where we're going to be looking at, talking about what... Um, really considering the impact that, that the restrictions on authorised workers, the impacts that they've had uh, within the context of the church, why the eldership have taken the position uh, that, that we have and landed where we are, and thinking about how we can best move forward. So if that affects you, you know, if that's kind of relevant and pertinent to you, then keep that in mind. Details, more details will come out during this week. David will send an email and, and that will come out. Uh, otherwise, check out the newsletter for, for more details of what's going on. Let's, uh, let's open the word uh, together. We are in Judges chapter 3 today. And we're going to read just a, a few verses. I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get into the, the sermon. So Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. And it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Narahim, uh, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray together, church. God, we do just thank you again that we are able to gather as your people. And we thank you that you are a God 
who is so wonderful and worthy that we could easily sing a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more just uh, to express our, our praise and our adoration of who you are. And yet, God, though you are so awesome and majestic and, and, and all of that, you speak to us, your people. You've given us your word for us to, to hear and to know your will, to see uh, the example of others of your people who have lived out uh, faithfulness to you or unfaithfulness as well. And so, God, as we come to your word now, we, we want to pray uh, that we are ready to hear what you would speak to us. We, we say that for us in, in this space. We say it for what's happening in our kids' church. We say it in the context of youth and young adults and, and all the other ministries of our church, God, as we open the words together, your word together. May we hear what it is you have to say to us. May we be responsive to it. May we um, <clears throat> follow you more closely and become more like you as a result of it. And we pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen. I am... Um, I think I've decided that my exercise of choice is to go for a walk. And I only say that I think I've decided that because I don't really go for exercise in general. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not a passionate exerciser. So if I, if I do choose to do it, I think the, the one of choice is to, is to go out for a walk. R- running sucks. And, you know, um, sorry, Andy, but... Um, I keep dabbling, but, you know, it's just not my thing. Bike riding, it's okay, but you get a sore butt, you know, all that kind of stuff. Walking, walking's my one of choice. But I do get a bit frustrated with with walking um, because I always start and finish at the same place, you know, my my home. And so I only ever get to walk much the same route. I mean, if you've only got half an hour to to go out, you're only going to do much the same same paths. I mean, I, I try to vary it. A, a bit, you know. I cut out a loop here, or I add an extra leg there. Sometimes, sometimes I walk the the track in the opposite direction, and, and I don't enjoy that. It's weird, but anyway, um, occasionally I'll, I'll take. You do know that I mean, yeah. I'm not walking backwards, but <laughs> just wanting to be clear. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes I'll take a, an entirely different route and walk different streets, but essentially I always come back to these same places, these same paths around home. And there's only so much variety I, c- I can give it, and only um, uh, and so much walking of the same loop each time can get a bit monotonous. Now, having said that, walking the same loop each time also provides landmarks. So I know that when I pass this gate, when I see that rock, when I cross this road, I know, I have a sense of how far I've come and how far I still have yet to go. I have a sense that there's a familiarity to the route that means that I know where I am and I know what's coming up next. It's a bit like watching a Hallmark Christmas movie. And I realise it's a strange connection, but so stick with me here. Mezzy's appreciating it. We love Christmas in our family, and uh, some of us more than others, I will admit. Uh, but one of the indicators of how a year is going for us is how early the Christmas music starts being played. So last year was not necessarily the best of years. But so while the Christmas music didn't start till September, the Christmas... <laughs> That's still pretty late. <laughs> the music didn't start till September, but the movies started in about June, I think. 
Uh, I think, Marin, you could confirm or deny this, that you watched every Hallmark Christmas movie you could find on YouTube you know, over, the, over those months. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Hallmark Christmas movie, but if you've seen one, you have literally seen all of them. <clears throat> there's, there's slight variations, but essentially, they are about this successful woman who's living life in the city, making a name for herself, who has to go home to the small country town that she grew up in for, for Christmas. And there she bumps into her high school sweetheart, who's still a, a country kid, but has managed to make something of himself, not to mention being hot. <laughs> and though they resist it, this city woman and the country guy, you know, she doesn't want to leave her busy corporate life in the city and he doesn't want to leave the country. So they resist it for all those kind of reasons and yet they fall in love. Until then, there's that moment, that, that drama, that causes her to question it all and she flies back home to the city heartbroken but determined to move on without him. But little does she know that he follows her home and he finds her and they decide, you know what, neither of us do have to give up our lives, we'll figure it out and they kiss and it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> so now you don't need to watch them either. Now, just like my walks around home, they can get a bit monotonous. Um, you know, in, in these movies, there, there's some variations on the theme, but, but the path is essentially the same. There's the familiarity to the story that you know from the very start what's going to happen and, and what's coming up next at, at any given point. You know, as you see the little bar along the bottom of YouTube that tells you how far through, you know, oh, the, the drama has to be coming up soon. Oh, no, they're, they're about to reconcile. It's about to come good. That familiarity with the story, with the path, provides landmarks for navigating what's coming up. Well, when we come to the book of Judges, Again, odd connection, but stick with me. <laughs> when we come to the book of Judges, which is what we're studying over the coming months, it's a bit like my morning walks or like a series of Hallmark movies. Though there are variations, though there might be you know, a detour here or a side story that's given a bit more attention over there, there there's a pattern to Israel's faith and behaviour in this time of history that plays out over and over again in the book. It can feel like, as you work through it, it can feel like walking over familiar territory. And in our passage for today, which was just a, a short one, just five verses, we actually see what that pattern is. We see the path laid out for us. It's a pattern we'll see again and again throughout the book of Judges, at least 12 times. And so we'll begin to spot the landmarks. We'll begin to get familiar with where we are on the path. But I want to say, as we look at this, that it's not a pattern only for the ancient Israelites. This is not just dead history that is interesting, but, you know, whatever. Because it's a path that we so often travel as well. They, as the people of God, follow this path that we, as the people of God, so often follow. So as we go, we'll see how it plays out for Israel, but we'll also consider how it looks in our lives. After all, one of the things that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says these things happened to them as examples and they were written down to be, serve as warnings for us. And so that's why we're, we're looking at this. Now, when we come to it, the story starts well. We read at the end of Joshua, 
that Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything that they had done, that the Lord had done for Israel. And so the story starts with the people following God. That might be a bit, oh, it's all right. That might be a bit small. We might need to squint, but we'll get the cycle up there. They had experienced his great salvation as God had led them out of Egypt by his mighty hand. He had provided water and bread and meat for them throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. He spoke to them from the mountain and gave them his covenant, including laws and commandments to follow uh, as an expression of what it was to be his people and, and and they were for their benefit and good. And then Joshua finally leads them into the land that God had promised them so long before. So these were a people who knew their God. They were familiar with his deeds on their behalf. They, they identified as the people of God having experienced his salvation. And so they followed God and they served God. Similarly for us, we experience God's grace to us in Jesus. And we look to him as Savior and Lord and we trust and we follow him for our lives. But where the path starts here, it then takes a downward turn. Let's work through the, the passage together. So we'll look at, again at, at verse 7 of Judges 3. And it says, the, Lord, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the, the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and Ashereths. The writer of Judges here makes a statement. He says, the Israelites did evil in God's eyes. That's the statement. And then he gives the description of what that evil looks like. They forgot their God. And they served other gods. So let's take a look at each of these in turns. We might ask, how could the Israelites forget God? I mean, after all the incredible things he had done for them, all the ways in which he had provided for them and protected them and led them and saved them, how, how do you forget all that? Well, think about it in our own lives. Maybe the moment of your salvation was a, was a standout, transformative moment. Maybe it was the culmination of, of a long, slow movement towards God. Or whatever it was, as time goes by, that moment recedes further and further back in your history. And sure, there have been you know, some, some nice God moments since, but in terms of your everyday life, well, most of the time you're distracted you know in the midst of changing nappies in the middle of the night in the midst of trying to keep the farm afloat after a disappointing harvest in the midst of staying on top of payroll and all the other accounts that that you've got to manage you you've got distracted from God other things come in front and center not only that but but in those moments when you're doing those things you you don't even really feel like you even need God He's a bit unnecessary to the ordinary realities of life. Maybe you wouldn't go so far as to say that he's irrelevant to most things you do, but, but maybe you would. In short, you're, you're too busy running your own life and doing all the things that have to be done to pay much attention to God. You forget God. And having forgotten him, having kind of pushed him aside, it's easy enough then to begin pursuing other gods. Now, I would almost guarantee that, that in our context, we are not following things as explicit as Baals and Asherahs. I mean, we don't 
have a Buddha set up in our home or a Hindu shrine or, or we're not wearing crystals to help us you know, get in touch with the energy lines of the earth or, or any of that. But still, we follow other gods. We like to be comfortable. <clears throat> so we arrange our lives around what causes us the most ease with minimal disruption. We avoid pain at all costs, seeking out instead fun and pleasure. So rather than deny ourselves anything, we, we claim our right to, to good times. We might seek power and influence, sacrificing anything, even our integrity, if we can get ourselves into a position of greater authority and prestige. It might be our, our right to choose to live our own lives our own way. It might be health and fitness. It, it, it could be anything, but whatever it is, we are making something else primary to our lives before God. And at heart, that something else is actually ourselves. We want to be God. And so having forgotten him, having pushed him aside, we pursue those false little gods that make us feel like that we're actually God. Now this downward movement, it's our natural tendency you don't need me to tell you that we don't drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards becoming more God-like, Christ-like and following God more and more in our lives. Rather, our, our inclination is away from God and towards sin. We see it very clearly in the Israelites, but if we're honest, we can see it all very clearly in our own lives as well. And we would hope that it's at this point that we see the landmarks that we, that we look at the, the progress bar along the bottom and we realize where we are and, and we turn around and go home at this point. But all too often we don't. I mean, this is the moment in the movie when it all goes bad because living in such a way, taking this path away from God leads to consequences. We read in verse 8 that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Now, we're not very comfortable hearing about God's anger, are we? It's something that David spoke about last week as he started in the book of Judges. See, God's anger is actually an expression of his love. If God didn't love, he wouldn't care what we do. He wouldn't care how we live. He wouldn't care about those things that we don't do. But he does love. And so he gets angry at our behavior. And he does so on two fronts. He does so first because our behavior is unacceptable to him. The writer describes our forgetting God and, and, and following after false gods, describes that as evil. I mean, that's a, that's a strong term. But in God's eyes, that's the right term. And God, who is perfectly holy and righteous, burned in anger against evil. But it's a loving anger. And so secondly, uh, God is angry because our behavior is unaccept unacceptable to him, but also it is damaging to us. God has designed our life to be lived in relationship with him. So when we forget him and when we follow other gods, we are living contrary to design and, and causing damage to ourselves. And we know this. Sin, while it might feel good in the moment, ultimately only damages and destroys. And so God 
is angry about it because he sees the harm that is being done. And so the result of God's anger in what we see here in Judges is that they experience suffering. And again, this makes us squirm. But we need to remember that it's God's holy love that shapes and defines his anger. So the suffering that the Israelites experience is not malicious. It's not capricious. Rather, it's it's the expression of a father's love. See, if you're a parent or or a teacher perhaps, when a child disobeys us, they do something that is unacceptable to us as their parents who have a loving, good authority over them. And when they behave in ways that are damaging to themselves, there's a there's a punishment for their actions. And I actually want to say that maybe the better word, and if this is not splitting hairs about the meaning of different words, that the better word for it perhaps is actually we discipline them. We discipline them with the twofold purpose of both deterring them from such harmful actions again and, and to motivate them towards and to train them towards the good and the right choices. Now, if we as parents, if we as teachers, if we as you know, adults supervising other children, if we behave in such a way, why would we think that God is any different? In the letter to the Hebrews, it says, Have you forgotten completely this word of encouragement that addresses you uh, as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And so endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, but if you're not, then you're not actually legitimate, true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. So how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Tim, can you? There we go. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us for our good. And we see that in the cycle of behavior of the Israelites here. Now, I do want to say, this is not to say that this is how we are to understand all experiences of suffering. The experience of suffering is far more complex than simply or always, you know, God is disciplining me. I mean, that's what Job's friends said to him. They said, dude, you, you've sinned, so you need to repent, and, and then you'll come good. But that wasn't the case for Job. Or think about Jesus. He lived in perfect, obedient relationship to the Father, and yet he still suffered. So we want to be able to explain suffering because it makes us feel more comfortable with it. But even though it seems to be a clear-cut cause and effect situation in the book of Judges, that, that's not universally the case. And I don't want to minimize or, or um, yeah, uh, otherwise you know, your experience of suffering. But, but in this case, for Israel, 
in the midst of their suffering, when they're they're at the bottom, in the midst of their subjection to a foreign power, it is then that they make a turn back towards God, which is always the invitation of suffering. When they cried out to the Lord, Now, we might like the cycle to make this turn without the experience of suffering, without God's discipline. But the reality is, as we see in the case of the Israelites, far too often we are too stubborn and stiff-necked to turn from our sin. We prefer to continue in our own ways, regardless of the cost and consequences, rather than admit we need God. I mean, the Israelites were subject to the king of Aaron for eight years before they then cried out. They were holding on to their own thing as long as they could. And God in his, in his love did not relent until they cried out to him. Now two things happen in this phrase. The people who had forgotten God, they now remember him. They remember his great salvation. They remember his provision. They remember his good laws for their benefit. They remember how he has acted on their behalf for their benefit and good. They remember God. And in remembering, they then turn aside from the false gods that they've been pursuing and they return to the true God. The idols are put aside as they seek God himself. And having cried out, God then shows his grace. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. Now, in fact, God has shown his grace throughout this whole narrative, but here we see it clearly. God provides Israel with a saviour. He knows their needs. He knows that they are powerless to do anything about it themselves. So he intervenes to raise up and provide them with a saviour. And notice that phrase in verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came on him. They are familiar words aren't they? If we're at all familiar with the story of Jesus, this phrase jumps off the page at us. Jesus, at his baptism, had the Spirit of God descend like a dove on him. And he claims for himself, you know, just a bit later, the the words of Isaiah, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So what we have in Othniel is actually a, a foretaste of what He's going to come in Jesus. Othniel is the shadow where, where Jesus is the fullness. And in the case of both Othniel and Jesus, however, God shows his grace by providing a saviour to people who don't deserve one. Othniel delivered Israel from their oppressor, the king of Aram, while Jesus delivers us from our oppressor of Satan, sin and death. And we come full circle then. Having experienced God's grace in salvation, the land then had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, it's not explicit, but it's implied that under Othniel that the people followed after God again. And they had peace for 40 years. Five times 
the length of time that they had suffered. Now, we can't read too much into that. But there is a sense that the blessing and the favour and the goodness of God far outweighs any suffering that comes from sin. Paul talks about these light and momentary troubles that, that are you know, not in the moment perhaps, but in the, in the larger perspective, they are so insignificant in the face of the glory that, that awaits. And though he's writing about a different kind of experience, he's talking about the experience of persecution rather than you know, God's discipline. It's still the same idea that subtly comes across here in our text from Judges. It's like the author is laying out the choice before the people that you can sin and suffer or you can follow God and you can experience his grace and his blessing and the one far outweighs the other. It's a similar choice to what Moses and then Joshua have already laid out before the Israelites that before them there is life or there is death. Now, in our passage for today, we have gone round this cycle just the once. But as we continue over the coming weeks, we will go around it again and again and again. We'll get familiar with the landmarks. We'll know what's coming up next in the story. Because despite all the opportunities to walk in faithfulness to God, the Israelites continually make the other choice. And it does not go well for them. And they need saving yet again from it. And now the thing is, we can read Judges from our vantage point and we can think, you know, those silly Israelites, if only they'd learned. If only they would wake up to themselves and stayed faithful to following God. But the reality is, they are not that different from you and from me. I mean, we too are the chosen and saved people of God. We too have experienced His great salvation. We too have known His provision and His care. And yet, we forget Him. We drift away and pursue gods of our own making. It's not just silly Israelites who go through this cycle. It's also us silly Christians who do the same thing. We too regularly need to remember and return and experience afresh God's grace. And the great promise of the Scriptures and the good news that is hidden within the book of Judges is that God shows His grace time and time again to people who don't deserve it. For all the darkness and depravity that we will come across in this book, it, it gets pretty dire. The incredible wonder of God's faithful grace shines through all the brighter. So as we come to a close today, I, I wonder where do you find yourself in this cycle? When we're familiar with the path, we can, we can use the landmarks around us to both to identify where we are and then to know our way home again. Uh, are you somewhere on that descent, drifting away from God, needing to cry out to Him and to experience His grace afresh? Are you right down the bottom, experiencing, you know, being in the midst of God's discipline, stubbornly enduring it, rather than responding to the one who's calling you back to himself? Are you, by, by grace-driven effort, are you faithfully seeking to follow after God and walk consistently in that? Wherever you are, today is a day for you to know God's grace. 
Wherever you are, today is a day for you to turn and to follow him in, in all of your ways. So I'd invite you to do that with me now as we pray. God, we thank you <clears throat> that we have the example of these ancient people of yours. An example that's been written down, not just for us to, you know, know fun facts about Bible trivia, but it's been written down for us as an example and as a warning to us to show us a way not to go as well as the way to go. And so today, God, we, we come having heard your word and the choices are laid out before us, life or death, to continue in sin and suffer as a result or to turn to you and, and to follow you in all of our ways, to experience again your grace, your love, your salvation that you have made possible in Christ. And so we come to you, God, as your people. As your people who tend to forget you. As your people who tend to pursue other gods, ourselves as God. And so we come, God, with a spirit of humility and repentance to cry out to you because we want to remember and return. We want to remember who you are and return to you with all of our hearts, with all of our lives. So we repent, God. We repent of the ways we have forgotten and gone our own way. We cry out to you to say we need again afresh your grace. We cry out for that again for the tenth, hundredth, thousandth, thousandth time today, let alone our lives. But we cry out with confidence, knowing that your mercies are new every morning, that your grace is sufficient and abundant and abounding, that you love us with an everlasting love. And so we can cry out to you again and we can trust in your salvation. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who died on that cross to bear our sin, to pay the price that we couldn't pay in order to give us his life, his life with you, God. And we want to walk in that more and more. Help us when we see ourselves drifting down that path away from you. Help us to, to see those landmarks and to turn quickly and to come back to faithfulness to you. Help us to be your people, not just in name, but in truth, in, in deed, in, in action, in attitude, in all of our lives. And as we are so, God, may, may the witness of your love and your grace just shine out to others. We pray this. We ask that you help us to follow you more faithfully and consistently. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.